Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 37. We're back to our series on video-based video game criticism. With me this time is YouTube game critic Noah Cadwell-Gervais. Hello. How's it going? Compared to some of the other people that I've interviewed so far on this series, you started relatively recently or relatively late, depending on how you want to look at it. It was 2013, I believe. Yeah. What got you to start doing videos? Boredom and frustration with working full-time at a pizzeria, basically. Like, I've been working Pagliacci Pizza since 2010, uh, like 40 to like 48 hours a week, like generally in there. And, uh, like, the thing about food service is that it's very Sisyphean. Like, you roll the rock to the top of the hill every day, and then at the beginning of every next day, you do the same exact thing. And, like, the repetition of it is really frustrating. And, like, I was doing video games as my hobby for, like, pretty much my whole life. But I really wanted to, like, do something more meaningful, like, in a general sort of way, than just working and playing games. And I figured that, well, I like writing, and... There was a lot of debate about, like, Fallout 3 versus Fallout New Vegas at the time. And I was really frustrated about it because I felt like people just weren't understanding where the different developers were coming from. Like, you really can't take Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas and be, these are equivalent products and intentions, right? I mean, they're coming from totally different design backgrounds. And I just thought that if people knew the context better that there would be a better conversation to be had about Fallout than sort of the back and forth like, oh, this one, no, this one. I was so frustrated with the discourse about Fallout, so I did the Fallout video. But the reaction to it was immediately hugely positive, and people were like, what's your next video going to be? And I hadn't thought of doing a next video until people asked me about it, but then I just sort of kept doing it. But originally... I hadn't actually heard of anyone else who was doing YouTube game criticism for a week there. I thought that I had invented it. But, um, I don't know. I, everyone else has been doing their thing for a while, but I've been doing definitely my own thing. Like, doing the, the franchises consecutively is something that not a lot of the other people are doing particularly. Like, I, I do the really long videos, and I've found my niche there. Yeah, where other critics seem to, like, hit that 10 to 20-minute mark, you go for the extreme length. It's like, I don't think you have one that's under 30 minutes, and most of them hit the hour mark. I've got a couple of them that are under 30 minutes. I feel like that's justifiable, though, because I use the table of contents, so, like, anytime anyone's bored, they can just turn it off and come back to it later, and a lot of people do watch it that way, where they'll, like, take the hour video and then watch it in five 20-minute chunks, just, like, over time. The thing about YouTube is that, you know, it's not like TV. It's not a broadcast medium, exactly. Like, it's an at-will medium. You can skip around to anywhere within the video. You can watch any video for free that's on the site. You can do all sorts of things with YouTube that can be more casual. When I was first coming up with the idea, both my girlfriend and my coworkers were like, I don't know if anyone's going to watch an hour-long video about Fallout. And I was like, well, I don't know. People listen to hour-long stuff about other stuff on the Internet. Like, I didn't particularly see why if it was being offered for free and you can turn it off at any time and you can jump around in it to any place, why a long video would necessarily be a bad thing. It's just sort of having everything all in one place. And just checking, it is your second most watched video. Oh, wow. Yeah, Call of Duty 1 surpasses it by about 40,000 views. Yeah, that was my big breakout last year was the Call of Duty video. Like, that's when... um, 
people who actually do games writing professionally started to sort of pay attention to me and the work that I'm doing. I don't want to say for sure, but I think that's actual. I think I found you maybe a few episodes before. Oh, cool. And well, Because I remember seeing the Red Faction one before the Call of Duty one. Yeah. But Well, I, I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule, but just, like, yeah. generally speaking, that's when I became known to a lot of people. Yeah, but you have... It seems like your videos, because of their extreme length, there feels like an almost completeness to the games that you're looking at. Although it's certainly even, because even the Fallout videos is just, you're going after five games, and even an, the hour that it is isn't enough to cover everything, but it still feels like you go into so much detail about what everything is that it feels complete. Thank you. Well, one of the things is that by doing several games in a row, you don't have to restart your conversation about it. The details that you talk about and the themes that you talk about are cumulative, Especially with Fallout, you start talking about Fallout 1 and 2 and, like, what Black Isle did with them and the Black Isle aesthetic. And then all of that stuff you come back to when you talk about New Vegas. That's still part of the topic at hand. It's not like if I had separate videos about Fallout 1 and 2 and New Vegas, you'd have to do setup and background for each to make them function as a video outside the, the whole. But when you link them that way, one after the other after the other, you don't have to repeat your details so much, which is pretty significant. Is there something about the retrospective format that draws you to it? Because almost all your videos are either like a compilation of the full series or of an, of like, I guess you could put it, a developer's gameography in the case of Troika. I don't know. I, I honestly haven't critically examined why... I do it in the format that I do it beyond just that I feel comfortable with it. Like, when I do single-game videos, I like doing single-game videos, but I feel like I can say more and say more interesting things if I can do a chain of things. So, like, if I can't do chronological franchise retrospective, you know, he said I might do, like, a developer or, like, take a particular theme when I did the video about, like, three different takes on zombie games and, like, how they can turn out so differently in, in the mechanics and in the, the feel. It just feels to me, if you look at things in context with a bunch of things together, that it's more illuminating than just seeing things in isolation. And I have more fun writing them that way. How do you choose the subjects of your videos? Well, I have a big list of things. Like, it takes so long to make these videos, and I pretty much only play the games that I'm doing for these videos, that a lot of it is boredom. I started a retrospective for Star Wars The Old Republic, and I got through the first two Knights of the Old Republic and loved them, and then I got uh, up through, like, level 42 in The Old Republic, and I was like, oh my god, if I play this MMO for one more second... I'm going to explode. I'm going to claw my own eyes out just because of how repetitive it is. But if I let my frustration with that game color my review, I'm not actually going to be saying all the things that I want to say about the Old Republic. So I took a couple of months break for, from it, and I'm going to come back to it in another month or two. But I got tired of the Old Republic, so I wanted to move on to something that I did care about and I did feel good about. And so I'm also in the middle of a Baldur's Gate retrospective, but I took the time out to do the Doom video. If something catches my eye that I feel like I can bust out Quickly, I sometimes interrupt my schedule of the longer videos to do that. Like when Firewatch came out, Firewatch was a big deal to me personally because I like nature writing so much, and I really wanted to see how a game would tackle that. So I choose games based on interest and for smaller games when the newer ones come out. But for the, the larger franchises, 
partly out of nostalgic familiarity. The games that I grew up playing, I have the most personal knowledge of how they've changed over time. And like, so the the games that I played when I was a kid, I have the best sense of how they've changed over a decade because I've been there and I've been paying attention and it's been familiar to me the whole time. But I also like doing things that have interesting modernizations where even if I didn't play the original, when I was a kid, it's interesting to go back and see how the new game draws inspiration from the old game. Like, I'm trying to think of a, a more specific example of that. Oh, Red Faction. I played Red Faction 1 when I was a kid like once and enjoyed it but going back and like playing red faction 2 red faction 2 is a terrible game but i had a ton of fun playing it just sort of seeing what they cared about in that era of design and bad games can really teach you a whole hell of a lot you play a game and you you try to think like where did they go wrong? No one wants to make a bad game. Everyone wants to make a good and fun game. So when a game is terrible, the question becomes, how did the developers lose track of what they were going for? And how can you put your finger on the thread of what they were going for in the first place? And I really enjoy that process. So getting to go back to older titles from developers that have a much more refined process now is particularly exciting, too. You've mentioned a few parts of it, but can you explain, like, the entire process of creating a video and, like, like how long that would entail? Yeah. Well, there's the playing of the game, and I do try to play games pretty thoroughly because usually there's really cool stuff in the side content. But I'm bad at finding secrets and collectibles, so as far as, like, secrets and collectibles go, I'm not taking hours out of my day to get the extreme minutiae of that. But... I do like to play a game to where I have a solid sense of, you know, I feel like I've seen pretty much everything that the game has. Otherwise, you really miss some cool stuff. There's so much cool stuff hidden in the, in the margins of games because there's so many people that contribute. So if you get a guy who just has this one corner of the map to, like, decorate and make his own, that dude is definitely going to make it his own, and you're going to get all of this little hidden stuff like seeing that. I like unearthing that. So I spend a lot of time with the games themselves. And then after that, I script it out, but I always uh, do an outline first. I have a skeletal outline of pretty much all of the points that I want to make in the order that I want to make them before I start doing the writing, which really helps for the long-term organization. So instead of getting lost halfway through and forgetting what I said previously and not being quite sure where to go next. Having a concrete outline of my points is key. So huge doing this writing. And the writing takes a while. Probably takes me about two hours page, and I usually do about 10 to 20 pages per review. So writing is a while. And that's it for one draft. I, I usually do a couple of drafts. I've been thinking about hiring an editor, though, I've had a couple of recent freelancing experiences where I got a chance to work with a real live editor for the first time, and it was completely transformative. If I want to get my writing to a place where it's better than it is now, it's definitely time for me to start seeking outside help and getting a, a second opinion and a second like pair of eyes on the stuff that I'm doing. Because like I really do need someone to tell me, hey, did you know that you used the word charismatic seven times in the last four pages? You've got to knock that off. I don't always catch on to the verbal tics that I have, and I don't always catch on to, like, sort of the more self-indulgent portions of my writing. But it's much more obvious to other people. So I really do want to hire a real editor to, to go through my stuff. 
And I think that I'm going to be doing that moving forward. Not this very next video, but the video after that. My Patreon is doing well enough that I can definitely afford to sort of take it to the next level professionally. Anyway, that's a tangent. The video part, after I do the script, I record my audio in paragraph-long chunks. So I'll read a whole paragraph in one take. Uh, and people are like, oh, he just does one take and then puts it in the can. But I don't. I actually go through about 10 to 15 takes per paragraph. It's just really hard to do a whole paragraph and not have some kind of screw-up. So I go for 90% correct. And if I feel like I don't break my rhythm with the errors I make in my narration, then, you know, I have a tendency to leave it in, particularly if it's getting late. But <laughs> I, uh, I do do multiple takes, but they're paragraph-long takes. So within the takes, there's always a little, a little mess up. So that's all before doing anything with the footage. Like, I play the game, and uh, as I'm going through the game, I record a footage in 30 to 60 second chunks of just sort of interesting things that I think are going to be iconic or relevant or that I'm going to want to talk about. And then I'll title all of the clips so that I'll, I know what's in them. And then when it comes time to do the video editing, I'll start by dropping in the block of narration in one, like, long two- to three-minute chunk. And then I'll take the clips, and I'll edit them down so that they fit within that particular paragraph and sort of generally jive with what I'm talking about. Like, not always, because you can sometimes put things in the video that I don't want to talk about. If I want to demonstrate sort of the more basic mechanics of a game, I feel like it's better to do that through video than through being, oh, you press X to do this. The actual playing of the game can be explained just by watching in most cases which is kind of a powerful feature of YouTube, I think. But anyway, so each paragraph take and each paragraph chunk of the video is sort of its own thing. But then I just move on to the next chunk and just do them all in sequence. So you get a, a sequence of paragraph takes that are edited for internal consistency within that two or three minute chunk and then just sort of woven together. And each step of this process would take, does that take the full month that your videos come out? or? Um, it's hard to say, because everything, everything is variable. Some games take longer than others. Some scripts take longer than others. The video editing process is probably the thing that's fastest, actually. Like, once I get to the point of doing the video editing, it's, it's probably no more than another 10 hours or so. But uh, getting to that point is the longest part of the process. Sometimes I'll be able to do two videos in a month or around there comfortably, because I'll be playing short games and only have, like, certain things to say about them, and other times I'll, like, take a month and still be late with it just because I'm trying to tackle a really complicated game so the script takes longer or a really long game. Like, I spent a month on Mad Max, which maybe I shouldn't have done, but it took me 60 in-game hours to, like, sort of finish Mad Max to my satisfaction. And I really liked doing the script, and I really liked doing the video, but that game and that video didn't really garner a whole lot of attention particularly, even though I enjoyed the process. And it was an extremely time-consuming process. Like, doing an Ubisoft open world takes forever. Much longer than Doom, which took me, you know, a little more than 48 hours. Like, I got the Doom video busted out in a weekend, and Mad Max took me the better part of a month. It's hard. You never know. What about the real-world intros that you do? Is that, like, a personal touch you feel they add? It's a personal touch I feel that they add, but also uh, it gets everybody on the same page right away about the fact that this is going to be a lo-fi production that I'm doing just as a dude. For people who 
make really flashy stuff, I mean, more power to them. But if you start off in your first five seconds of like, oh, super flashy, high production, then people are like, oh, it's a super flashy, high production kind of deal. But if you start off in your first five seconds with a hand-drawn sign and a warbling eight-track, you're like, oh, this guy's just in his basement. And so then if people stick with it, and a lot of people don't, YouTube Analytics tells me that I have like a 60% viewership drop-off in that first 60 seconds or so because people are like, oh, this guy. But for the people who stay, they're usually pretty pleasantly surprised. After that, in the analytics, it plateaus pretty solidly. So like... A 60% drop-off typically in, like, the first minute, but then between then and the end of the video, I usually only lose, like, another 10 to 15% of viewers. Generally speaking, for most of my videos, even the really long ones, like Mass Effect, it's, generally speaking, 15 to 25% of people who start the video finish the video, even if it's a huge one, which is really cool. Like, that's that's the metric that I really care about. And then the people who would complain about my video and the production quality, just stop watching in the first 30 seconds. And I think it's better that way. It's sort of self-selective in a way for the kind of people who would have a patience to watch myself anyway. I feel as like a hominess, like there's one where you were holding up the written title cards and then you just toss them into the fire one by one. Yeah, for my Firewatch video. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. You definitely get to do stuff like that with the camcorder. I'm not limited by the software. I'm just limited by what I can sort of come up with. So I sort of, for each game, try to come up with something that would be cool. And, like, sometimes I can't think of anything, like, interesting. And other times the thing that I think is going to be interesting is just kind of dumb. When I did uh, my Barrel at Sea video, I was like, oh, I'll put the title card in a bowl of water. But it, you, know, you can barely read it, and it looks dumb. Because, I don't know, sometimes the ideas are okay, and sometimes they're not. But the cool thing is that I can be way more playful with it than I could be if I was trying to use software for my title cards. I went back uh, in preparation for this interview to watch your earliest videos again, and there's, like, a noticeable improvement in the audio yeah. over those first few. So what were you learning, over, I guess, in that process? It's not necessarily that I was learning more, because, honestly, the way that I do my audio hasn't changed. I don't use Audacity. I use Windows Sound Recorder. It's just the equipment that's changed. I started using Windows Movie Maker, and I couldn't figure out how to get a good video fidelity out of that, which is why all of my early videos looked like they were thrown in a trash can and, like, shook around for a while. But I was also using a $5 Radio Shack desktop mic for those early videos. And then that took me a long time to replace. But I finally upgraded to a headset and then just much more recently got, like, a, a real professional microphone. So it's less technique and software upgrades than it has been, like, incremental hardware upgrades. And I suppose that I've also just been trying to get better at doing the narration. I have a bad tendency in the early videos to have too slow of a lilt to my voice, and I feel like they drag on a bit. And so in more recent videos, I've been trying to, like, make sure that there's more of an energy and a momentum to my voice to carry it along, but early on I was just sort of still trying to figure out just how to get through 20 pages of script. I've become much more comfortable with the length of the process and the amount of narration that you have to do to the point where I can start focusing much more on trying to make sure that it's as, as lively as it like really needs to be for that amount of time. Yeah, once you start noticing how you speak, it's it really is hard to not notice it everywhere around you. Yeah. Stuff that never 
as soon as I started to learn to do audio editing for these podcasts, I realized, good God, everyone says like and um all the time. Myself especially, never, yeah. You never pick it up, though. No. Well, I mean, when you're, uh, when you're listening casually, you just edit it out. It's just background noise. But when you're, like, right there, when you're actively... <laughs> listening to a person then you know you're gonna you're gonna pick apart like all of these little things that if you're listening much more casually would just sort of flow by <laughs> the fun part is is that I, I where i edit most of the sections i get to skip over this one because i have to leave in all the errors so people understand <laughs> <laughs> well you, but, you can do however you like it with the audio editing yeah. for this video sir but one of the when I refer to the audio improvements is that uh, it was when I re-listened to the Fallout is that there are sections where you can barely hear you because the games mix overtakes yeah voice that's the the mix is something that I've continued to struggle with for the Fallout video there really isn't a particular excuse for that I just I hadn't listened all the way like when I was doing the thing I was just so happy to be at the end of it. I hit publish, and, like, I hadn't actually noticed that the audio was on balance just out of pure enthusiasm for getting to the end of the damn project. Like, since it was my first project, keep in mind. But since then, I have tried not to ever make that mistake again because it's a super obnoxious amateurish mistake. But I do still make that mistake a little bit from time to time. Like, the Firewatch video, as much as I liked it, it was the first one that I did with a new microphone, and I wasn't using any decibel boost on it, and the audio just turned out way too quiet. And for, you know, desktop, that's fine, but for a lot of people who are listening on devices like cell phones and such, they actually couldn't make their device volume high enough to hear me. So it's tricky. Anytime you change something, you introduce the possibility of making brand new errors. <laughs> You know, I try not to, but I am an amateur to start, and because I keep trying new things, I'm an amateur continually. So, We've been talking about some of the challenges and the efforts you have to go through with video. It brings up the question, for the video game criticism, why use video specifically? You mentioned earlier it's easier to show something in action for when you need to describe mechanics, but overall... Does video add something else to the criticism to make it worth that effort? I think it hugely does, actually. Because video games are so visual, I mean, that's half of them, easily half of them, is what you see and what the art design is and that whole shebang. That being able to, to show that for the entire length that you're talking in a way that isn't just static shots is really important. You know, I, I grew up with print reviews and critiques, and, like, seeing the screenshots of the game is nice, but it doesn't truly give you an impression of what the game is like. Here, even if you don't agree with anything that I'm saying, visually speaking, I'm still representing the game. You're still getting an impression of what the game is about, even if you're disagreeing with me. And video allows me to show things and share things about the game that I find really interesting or beautiful or cool and not have to specifically add those things into my script. So when I'm writing the script and trying to think what are the themes I want to talk about, like what characters, what design elements, I don't have to talk about so many specific details and go on tangents and stuff like that because to show the deep background of the game and how the game functions on a basic mechanical level. All of that can be demonstrated through video. So I was talking to another fellow, and he asked me if that was sort of shorthand or not. And I don't think so. I think that doing video is 
very complementary to the process of games criticism, like specifically games criticism. But I'm also going to try to reverse engineer the format later. You know, I've been working on this VW bus for a long time. I haven't had a car for ages, but I am still trying to do travel videos. And I want to take the principles of sort of let's play video production and the critiques that I'm doing, and instead of talking about video games, I want to talk about travel literature, and instead of using video game footage, I want to use footage of, like, the actual roads that these books talk about that I'm traveling down. And so it'll be really interesting later on, like, when I finally get that part of the project done, to see what it looks like to translate this style of criticism to something that's not digital. But I don't know what that looks like yet, because I haven't got the damn bus to run. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but... um I don't know, there's there's something about it, something about YouTube and something about using video specifically that I think allows you to convey more, like meaningfully more than you would just with print or audio. In that conveyance, what are your critical influence, both in video and otherwise? For video, I mean, I just started out winging it, and there's a lot of people on YouTube that I'm very, very fond of, but I discovered all of those folks after the fact, and I deliberately try not to be, like, too influenced by them because I don't want to seem derivative. Like, you know, Aaron Signal and such have been doing games criticism for a number of years longer than I have, and they do such slick productions. Like, Campster particularly condenses his videos in a way that I'm just not really able to do very well. You know, he only does the 10 to 20 minute format, but the quality of the video editing and sort of the conciseness of the points is something that I think is really impressive. And then there's other YouTubers like Xbox Ahoy, who doesn't do the critique part in such a depth, but for his retrospectives, the production quality is absolutely television standard. Xbox Ahoy's stuff is, on a technical level, just jaw-droppingly cool. And, like, he's, he's got a really nice mellow voice. I really, really love that guy's production. And everybody has their sort of own shtick that they bring to the table as far as, as YouTube and games criticism is concerned. And I really enjoy sort of the diversity of approaches to it. Everyone has their own different style. That's one of the reasons why I feel like YouTube games crit is not particularly competitive because you give us all the same game and none of us are going to say the same damn thing about it. So, I don't know. I feel like I got derailed from your question, though. <laughs> Well, you've got the video influences. How about the critical influences otherwise? Uh, otherwise. Otherwise, definitely more along the lines of sort of text authors. I mean, Roger Ebert is obviously a big one. I grew up reading his, and uh, I remember I, I went through a period when I was like 14 or 15 where I read all of his one- and two-star reviews of everything because I really enjoyed him being snarky about movies. Like, he was really influential, but I've I've always really enjoyed reading movie reviews and, like, reading competing movie reviews specifically, like, how different people will articulate their opinion on the same thing. Also, this obviously isn't a stylistic thing, but to this day, I will always read one-star Amazon reviews of things I really enjoy to, to do. But as far as actual stylistic influence is concerned, I think probably one of my my biggest two, anyway, are travel authors, Bill Bryson and William Least Heap Moon. The way travel writers, and particularly those two, organize their personal experience and their personal reactions to things with historical data and natural description, the way that they weave together the environment and themselves and the context of both of those things is just 
extraordinary, like really so good. As far as my approach to video games goes, that's sort of where I started out with is there's this long tradition of authors who, when talking about having adventures in the real world, do it this particular way, that uh, the way that travel writers do. And so talking about video games and the adventures that you have in video games, that just seemed like a really obvious jumping off point for me. Like I've grown up my whole life listening to people articulate their adventures in this particular way, and it just seemed like a natural fit for me to do the same. Yeah, I appreciate how you add something new. Again, your Firewatch video, because your knowledge of like Western frontier literature was able to bring so much to light the way you able to talk about the game because I didn't hear any of those references, any of those connections made elsewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, it's video game culture can be really insular from time to time. But, I mean, the thing about Firewatch is that I looked for the interview and I couldn't find it, but I'm pretty sure that I saw an interview where one of the Firewatch devs was talking about Annie Poole's Close Range, which is uh, the, the book that I quoted the most in, in that review. But all of that stuff, it really matters, and it really does influence things. And, like, you, you can't take games just as an isolated phenomenon. They're an artistic form that stands with all of the other things that came before. Like, they're not better, they're not worse, they're just different. And so when you talk about them, particularly with a game like Firewatch, I feel like it's really important to look at how it's expressing itself artistically compared to what came before, and that was, that was one of the things that really annoyed me about the gaming community's reaction to Firewatch is that people are like, these people are just making Oscar bait, like trying to be so clever. And like they're not trying to be so clever. They're just trying to do the like a wilderness story. They're trying to do in games what people have been doing in literature and short forms for a really long time. They're not trying to be novel in a general artistic way. They're trying to be novel in format with a sort of artistic expression that's actually been around for a really long time. Was Firewatch sort of the, I don't want to say, like, unicorn for you, the way you were able to connect that to your other interests, or am I just forgetting other sec other type of games where you were able to do that same sort of thing? No, it's totally a unicorn, which is why I dropped everything when it came out. <laughs> it was just like, this is <laughs> one, this is the one for me. But there are other things. There's one, I can't remember the name of it. I think it's Jalopy. It's an indie game coming out where you have, where you're in an Eastern European country, I think it's during the Cold War, and you have to assemble this fucking Yugo from spare parts and then drive it on this, like, long trip. But, I mean, the thing is, like, always breaking down, and, uh, like, the, the whole point is basically, can you keep this car alive from point to point? with this really interesting sort of historical artistic context surrounding it. And so, like, that's going to be another one that sort of fits really well in with some of my, my other areas of enthusiasm. But, like, from time to time, a, a game will come up that, like, I can really zero in on in an interesting way. But I also do a lot of reading specifically for games and such. I'm going back, trying to read some, like, classic space opera in preparation for No Man's Sky coming out. I went and I reread that Joseph Campbell interview book with the journalist. I think it's The Power of Myth, where they're actually like talking on the Skywalker Ranch, Lucas's property, and talk about Star Wars a lot. So for when I finally get my Knights of the Old Republic retrospective out, you know, I'm going to be specifically quoting Joseph Campbell talking about Star Wars. But I wouldn't be able to have that context or or that if I, if I didn't actually like go out and do the research.
I've noticed that you actually return to some of the games over and over. You did so with the Dragon. You did Dragon Age. You did Fallout. You did two videos on Fallout Four. Where I'm, I'm about to do a third video on Fallout Four. Actually, that's what I'm working on today. After we get off off the line. Well, what does it make you feel like when you have to go back to redo a video or like do more stuff on a game in a video? Well. I think DLC is, can be more transformative of games than people give it credit for. Like, I started out not playing DLC with my videos because I didn't want to, like, spend five to ten extra dollars, but as time went on and I did better and I, find, I found myself with five to ten dollars in my pocket to do these things, I started just getting really, really into how post-release content changes a game. And so if there's a game that I really care about, I really want to go back in and sort of comprehensively do that. And I always wait until all the DLC is out so that I can do it all in one chunk. But, like, I went back and I did uh, all the Alien Isolation DLC, and that was really interesting because none of it was plot-related. It was all arcade DLC, which was really interesting. So, like, trying to puzzle out why they chose to do it that way and, like, how I felt about it, that was a really cool, cool diversion. It was a totally different sort of experience doing that piece than doing my regular Alien Isolation piece. And then, like... With Dragon Age Inquisition, I had a lot of complaints about sort of the pacing and, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot to complain about with Inquisition. And so going back through and playing the whole game a second time over and doing it with all the DLC, like, it was a totally different experience. And it was really meaningful to me to sort of articulate how you can have two completely different experiences with a game and the DLC more often than not, like, I'll change that. Fallout 4's DLC is particularly weird, so I'm, I'm stoked to talk about it. Replaying games, though, does come at the expense. I chose to play Dragon Age Inquisition for a second time instead of playing The Witcher 3, for example. And because I do play games based on my patience, it's going to be a while before I feel like a hundred, you know, a hundred-hour fantasy epic again. You've got to make decisions on the fly about sort of what you care about and what you care most about talking about. And since, like, I know that everyone says The Witcher 3 is good, I'm sure that it is, but I just didn't care about it as much as I cared about, like, how the DLC would change my experience with Inquisition. So I did that one instead. And another thing I like about what you do with videos is that you don't only make videos about critically lauded games or series. The big highlight of this would be Postal Hatred and the Weighing of Worth of Asshole Simulators. Thanks. Yeah, that one's absolutely my most divisive video. I'm glad that it exists so I never have to touch those games and still know what they contain. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is that, like, a lot of people, particularly in the comment section of that video, were like, oh, you're just looking for a game to pick on, aren't you? And, like, I wasn't, actually. The reason I chose to do that video in the first place was because of how bent out of shape everyone was getting about Hatred uh, when Hatred came out. And I was looking at Hatred and thinking, this game looks really boring, and the controversy that it was aiming for for sales, we've had this conversation before for several decades. So the fact that everyone was treating hatred seriously instead of being, this looks like a dud, I was annoyed at that. So I wanted to go back to the original Postal and be like, you know, we already had this conversation 10 years ago and agreed that it's frivolous. But then I went back and I played Postal 2 and then Apocalypse Weekend, and the Apocalypse Weekend expansion is the thing that really did it for me. I just completely lost my patience with Postal during the Apocalypse Weekend thing. 
and then going back to Paradise Lost and seeing them cashing in on the same thing again, it changed my thesis. My original thesis was more about the violence and sort of the meaninglessness of the violence in Postal and Hatred, but the thing that I ended up wanting to talk about more, like much more, is the attitude that Postal 2 has, the way it trolls by design, basically. So, Postal 2, I didn't start out wanting to say negative things about it or trash talk it, and I certainly wasn't going after running with scissors as a developer, but as I played these games in sequence, my list of grievances with them grew longer and longer and longer, and then I wanted to articulate them all, and that took 90 minutes. Had you played the games prior, or was this your first exposure? Well, I played them when I was 13, and like 13, 14, in that early, angry teenage period. I liked them back then, but because my experience with them at the time was so uncritical, I didn't actually anticipate being so opposed to them and being so irritated by them when I went back through them this time. Like, when I was 13, Postal uh, Postal 2 particularly was just the ticket. Before I even went out and surreptitiously bought the game behind my parents' back, I must have played the demo for that like 20 times. But that was back when I was a kid, so I didn't, like I said, I didn't anticipate not liking it. But, oh boy, howdy, did I not like it. But, I mean, I wrote that into the script. I wrote a pretty big chunk of it, sort of trying to figure out why it is that the game appealed to me so much when I was 13, and then when I'm 27, having the game come up as as such a sour note. Is there anything you'd wish you'd done differently with any of your previous videos or could go back and change or fix? I Just technical stuff, and then a number of just stupid errors that I should have caught but didn't. For example, in one of my Fallout 4 videos, I was, oh, Nick Valentine, that's James Woods. And I didn't even double-check it because it was, oh, yeah, that's James Woods for sure. I don't know why I didn't double-check on IMDb. I always, always, usually double-check on IMDb, but I didn't that time. And from time to time, I'll just say something that's just dumb that should have come out in a first draft but didn't because the I mean my scripts are really really long and so I don't always catch everything which is one of the reasons why I do really want to hire an editor is because I would like these scripts to go out the door without me making quite such a fool of myself from time to time do you regret maybe too strong a word but do you regret the the long form format sometimes and wish you because it limits how much you can produce? You know, not at all, because it's not that I produce less. I mean, on on a video-by-video, video, like, I have less, fewer total videos, but if you broke down each video by the number of games individually that I reviewed within them, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm getting up close to 100 now. I've been quite prolific, but I've been quite prolific in sets and sequences. And so that, that organizes how I play my games and how I choose to play my games and how I spend my time with with my hobby that's really informed by what videos I want to make. But I, I love the long-form format. It's where I'm comfortable. It's the kind of writing I like doing. And, like, instead of trying to do different things with games videos, I want to sort of keep going with this format and then also try to expand this format backwards into real life. You touched on it a few times before about wanting to do travel writing in the same way, but can you expand more in depth 
on your plans for that or what you'd like it to be or what you think it could be? Yeah, well, here's an example of a video that I want to do. I want to do John Muir versus John Muir, where I talk about some of the more classic works of the 19th century naturalist John Muir. But then there's a 20th century hippie mechanic John Muir who wrote the guide to keeping your your air-cooled Volkswagen engine running forever for the complete idiot, which is basically the most common Bible of VW repair. And because he's an old hippie, he's got all of this philosophical stuff about, like, how you should relate to your Volkswagen, how you should philosophically treat it while you're doing repairs. And there's all sorts of mechanical spiritualism that the 20th century John Muir puts into his thing. So I want to do a video talking about how sort of the spiritual experiences of 19th century John Muir out in the forest and traveling through and experiencing nature and grappling with it is part of the same expression of sentimentality and spirituality as John Muir the mechanic was experiencing with the freedom that he found in Volkswagen repair and that sense of mastery over the environment and relating to something that is completely alien to you but feeling a kinship with it. Like 19th century John Muir talked about the mountains that way and 20th century John Muir talked about, you know, the Volkswagen that way. But for both of them, the feeling is similar. So It'll be really cool to be able to talk about those things, but also have footage of Volkswagen repair processes, the Sierra Nevada, where John Muir spent so much of his time, being able to visually illustrate these concepts alongside, you know, just talking about the source material in like a podcast kind of way. I want to do literature analysis the same way that I'm doing game analysis, but I want to illustrate them using the the environment's that these books t- took place in, basically. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's the plan, anyway. Okay. So, have you trained your voice to sound great in audio, or is that just a natural gift? I, I haven't done any training or anything like that. When I was growing up, frequently people were like, oh, what's your accent? Like, where do you come from? And, like, I don't have an accent that I know of. I don't have a right to an accent. I grew up outside of San Diego in California. I should have just a regular old California accent. But the the thing is, is that my cousin and my birth father also have the exact same, like, cadence and rhythm of voice. Like, it's, it seems to be more of a family thing than a regional thing, which is peculiar. Like, I don't know why it would work that way necessarily, but I guarantee you that my birth father and I are on the phone indistinguishable from one another. Rhythmically, word choice, we both just speak really similarly. It's a natural speaking voice. It's my natural speaking voice. It's my natural rhythm of speech. But it's not regional. It's just personal, and it seems to be family-related. And it seems to work very well for the style of videos you create. Thank you. Is there anything else that I haven't asked that you feel that you should talk about or say? I don't know. I think we've pretty much covered it all. We've talked about how, you know, I'm, I have ambitions toward professionalism, but don't actually achieve that all the time. We've talked about how I started doing my videos and why I keep doing them. I talked about my ambitions for things outside the game and videos. I, I don't know. We seem to be pretty much up to date. Actually, we, we only touched on it before, and I crossed it off my list, but the Call of Duty video, the one that has the most views and that got you all that recognition, oh, yeah, yeah. it's over two hours. It is a full movie, but 
it doesn't feel like that way. It clips along rather well and gives an insight that most criticism on Call of Duty doesn't fully complete. So I'm not I'm not quite sure if there's a question in there other than to say that it than me saying, yeah, it was an awesome video, go watch it. Here's here's why I think it works like that. I think it's because of how I do things in sort of sequences of medium-sized chunks of content, like, within the larger video. <clears throat> so in that video, each game that I talk about, I spend maybe 8 to 12 minutes on it. So each individual game review is pretty short. And then I do the whole paragraph takes where, like, I, I'll talk about a thing sort of completely and then finish it in one audio take with no breaks. I think that, like, as far as, I don't know, for lack of a better word, lecturing style goes, that helps people sort of bear with it over long periods of time because it feels more natural. It feels like you're actually listening to someone as opposed to when you're cutting up audio. And not everyone does it this way, but sometimes when people sort of overproduce their audio, it can sound kind of staccato and a little jarringly broken up. But there's a flow to doing the large paragraphs, I think, just in the listening that I think is valuable. And I think that does contribute to making, like, a two-hour analytic YouTube video actually worth watching to some people. But the internal pacing is done in a way... I was conscious the whole time of, if I'm going to do 11 campaigns in a row, how long is this thing going to be? So I wanted to try to be as as pithy as possible within the individual reviews. And because you, because they are all chained together, I'm able to sort of create a cumulative point about the entire series by the end of it that you would have to bring those sort of points in from the outside if you were doing it, just talking about individual games. You'd have to, like, open up your argument and then bring in all of this other stuff. But because I did them all in sequence and built the argument slowly over time, by the time I get to my conclusions about the whole franchise, I've already, over the past 90 minutes, already laid down all my evidence slowly, brick by brick, over time. It's also, it adds like a nice historiography to it by the fact that you're just going in order and you're proceeding along video game history from 1999 to the present day. Maybe that's why it works, that there's an actual story to the criticism. Plus, again, with sort of the power of visual format, it's really interesting to see, see with your eyeballs how the games become more detailed and bombastic over time. I don't know, I'm talking about regrets about the videos, one technical thing that I've struggled with is the file size of recording footage. For pretty much all of the Call of Duty videos, I had to use Fraps. And Fraps uses probably about a gigabyte of footage per 45 seconds. Or really less than that, actually. Less time than that per gigabyte. It's outrageously uncompressed as a file format. And so for the Call of Duty videos, to get all of them on my hard drive. I recorded many of them in half resolution. And if I had the opportunity to go back, like I do now with, like I have, I have a terabyte of space now, but at the time I only had 500 gigs, uh, including the games and my operating system and all the other regular things that you need to put on a computer. I wish that the video fidelity was sharper, but I recorded in half quality just for the space to, to get them all to fit. And you actually mentioned in there that you didn't do the console ones because you don't have access. 
Do you feel like there's a limit in that you only do PC games, or does it not matter to you? It doesn't matter to me because it's a, a comfort limit. Playing console games actually gives me a headache. It gives me an actual headache to use a controller because uh, I didn't really grow up with it. I had a N64 there for like a minute when I was 12 or so, but like I, I just I didn't get into that control scheme. Like the mouse and keyboard is where I feel I feel good and. The stuff that comes out for PC is is pretty much most of what I want to play. There's a few exceptions. I wish that I had been able to finish the Gears of War series. Gears of War 1 is the only one that ever came out on PC, and I really wanted to play 2 and 3. I love Westerns. I'm a huge Western fan, and Red Dead Redemption never came out for PC. played some of it over at a friend's house, but, I mean, you can't, like, finish a game like Red Dead Redemption on your friend's couch, really. <laughs> so I, it sucks that I wasn't able to play that. You can play Call of Juarez if you want for Westerns on the PC, <laughs> but it's it's pretty barren as far as that particular genre is concerned. So there's some games that just seem really, really cool that never come out for PC, and it sucks missing out on those, but I don't know. The PC is just such a huge utility, and the other thing is that I'm trying to pare down my possessions into what will fit into a, a storage bin in the bus, basically. So I don't spend a, a bunch of money on a bunch of fancy electronics that I'm just going to put in storage coming up. So just having a simple setup that I can do from a single foldable machine that you can put in the backpack is pretty amazing. Well, I guess with that, we just have the final fluff question left for us. Shoot. What is your favorite video game of all time? Ah, this question. <laughs> oh, man. Um... Probably the most influential one for me has been Fallout. Fallout, the first one I played, I think, like, in 98 or 99 when I was very, very young. And I had played other PC games, but mostly just, like, game games. I played Doom, and for whatever reason, I was a huge fan of... God, Sierra had an A-10 tank killer flight sim that I was just all about for, like, a year when I was a kid. Anyway, total... Totally tangential. When Fallout came around, like I'd, I'd never seen anything like it, ever. And the the depth of the writing and the the way they designed the world with the retro futurism, like it was hugely influential. Like that uh, that sort of retro futurism of the fifties design just lodged in my mind for life. The first car I ever bought was a 1978 Lincoln Continental, and I got it specifically because it reminded me of the Chrysler's Highwaymen from Fallout 2. <laughs> Fallout shaped who I was as a person and a gamer probably more than any other particular title. And then I keep on returning to it in my life. It was the first YouTube video I ever did. And then I recently had an opportunity to have my first ever real published freelancing work I wrote a little featurette about um, some of the side content in Fallout Forest Far Harbor DLC, and uh, I got an opportunity to write that up for a Glixel newsletter thing that Winter Media, the folks that are doing Rolling Stone, is putting out. So when I started my amateur video game criticism career, it was Fallout. When trying to start the professional phase of my YouTube or my game criticism career, it starts with Fallout. My appreciation for games as an artistic medium started with Fallout. It's Fallout. Fallout is my answer. <laughs> and with that, we come to our end. Uh, tell us where you can find your stuff, and don't forget everything else. Sure. 
I publish everything under my own name. If you just go ahead and Google Noah Caldwell Gervais on the YouTube, um, I'll come up pretty quick. You can also Google some of the titles of my stuff, Thorough Look at Fallout, Thorough Look at Half-Life, Complete Call of Duty Campaign Critique, Single Player Campaign Critique. And you should be able to find most of those in the show notes that we talked about. Cool. And my channel and pretty much everything I do is uh, supported by people on Patreon. I also under my own name on Patreon. Crowdfunding lets me basically do this instead of making pieces all the time. I still do work part-time at the pizzeria just for rent, but it's just a couple days a week now. Without that tremendous outpouring of support I've gotten from crowdfunding, like I never would have been able to make that transition. It's been very powerful for me. So there's that. But it's pretty much that. Um, I might potentially have a review of Dangerous Golf up on Polygon today, <laughs> which will be fun. So. <laughs> And thank you for coming on, and thank you out there for listening. If you enjoy what we do at Critical Distance, you can support us at our Patreon. It keeps the lights on. It makes us be able to produce content like the weekly roundups, critical compilations, and this podcast. You can find that at patreon.com slash critdistance. As well as, if you like the podcast specifically, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Rate and review. It helps out a lot. And I just enjoy reading the nice things you have to say. Frankly, I enjoy any attention that this could receive so bad. So if you have something negative to say or something constructive to say, please do that too. Any reviews at all. Thank you, Noah, again for coming on. Absolutely. Naturally with the hound at this particular moment. <laughs> well, it's been a blast. It, I've had a wonderful time. Thanks, uh, thanks for your patience,